everybody, and welcome to a holiday edition of the Total Soccer Show, our weekend review. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. Joining me for this very special episode is Mr. Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Oh, hi, Tay-Tay. Very special. What's very special? Just that we're doing this on a day when we should not be working? That is correct. It's the only way <laughs> I can uh, get myself under the happy emotional mood required to record a, a weekend review while the rest of the city is shut down. And I mean that literally because the three places I went to to get breakfast this morning all closed. Way to go, Richmond. Thanks for that. Oh, boy. All three Starbucks, huh? <laughs> It was basically uh, ex- ever-expanding uh, circles of okayness. Like, it started with the places I really wanted to go and then just got larger and larger as I kept trying to find something that was open, eventually settling on 7-Eleven. Uh, everyone's favorite oh. place to go for breakfast. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm me, so too. Sorry. me too. It, it, goes, it goes back to the days when, I think before Daryl was vegetarian when we first started the show, the only place that to eat, like, late night uh, when we would get done recording – was the 7-Eleven down the street. Thankfully, that is no longer the case. But that used to be the days of, like, the quarter-pound spicy Big Bite, which I guess I could eat when I was, like, 23 and 24 years old. If I ate that now, I think I'd have heartburn for, like, the next month and a half. Quarter-pound spicy Big Bite. Yeah, it's... it's you can uh, have to elaborate. So what you do is you take, uh, I guess, like, an intestinal casing, and you fill it with chemicals and everything that will hurt your stomach, plus, like, hot sauce, and then oh. uh, serve after sitting in, like, a rotating rack for... Between like two hours and 14 weeks, something like that. Right. It sounds mm. like they've got some Scottish cuisine going on there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's that's what I always said about 7-Eleven, very Scottish cuisine. And we will be talking a little bit uh, Scotland today in our weekend review. We've got Premier League, Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, um, and as I said, uh, some SPL, some MLS as well. But Ryan Bailey, I want to start with tennis, if you don't mind. Uh, okay. <laughs> so Ryan is covering is is uh, covering tennis now, the tennis expert, and this is very much a question of ignorance, and I mean this genuinely. I'm I'm curious about tennis. I saw the videos this week of like the 15 year old female tennis player whose name I do not remember. W- what's the story there? Why why is she the new media darling? Um, well, she's 15 years old, Corey Goff, uh, aka mm-hmm. Coco Goff. Um, okay. Just that she's 15 and she's holding her own, and she did quite well at Wimbledon, and she did quite well at the U.S. Open as well. And she played Naomi Osaka, who is mm-hmm. also was who is the reigning U.S. Open champion, and she's also very young. But golf is even younger, so it was just a nice little story. And they were both very pleasant to one another. So yeah, that that, it. that exchange seemed, seemed very lovely, and, and it, it was did, really nice. Yeah, so it, it it got me a little bit back into tennis. I was like, okay, tennis. It's been a while. It's been a while. I think strangely, the last time I was like super into tennis was when I was very young, and it was like the Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, like uh, back and forth. That was the last time I was like really watching tennis consistently. But maybe I'll try to get back onto your level and watch some more regularly. It's it can be fun. I mean, like the, the U.S. Open. I actually went to it once. Um, and it's quite rowdy, like because I used to go to Wimbledon every year, and it's quite prim and proper. And then you go to New York, no, and, like, people really, like, people no, people like during points are on their phones and are like, hey, I'm talking here, and you know <laughs> that, that kind of New York stuff going on. I, I I am not surprised to hear that the, that Wimbledon is prim and proper. That makes sense. Is that where you were drinking pims, or is that somewhere else? Yeah, well, that could be one of many places, but yes. Were you doing that recently? Yeah, I went to the. I actually went to the Wimbledon men's final this year. That's because I'm fancy. 
<laughs> you are fancy, which is why we have you here to talk uh, all things soccer. We're going to start with the Premier League, as we tend to do. And let's start with the North London Derby. Ryan texted me uh, NLD uh, in the like his running order from the weekend, and it took me a while to remember that uh, that's what that was. Uh, Arsenal 2, Tottenham 2. Uh, I genuinely don't know if this game went as I expected or if one of these two teams should be happy with the result. Ryan, w- what do you make uh, of this one overall, given that, like, we kind of have expectations that Tottenham will be safely top three, but then they've struggled already this season. Arsenal, we had questions about their quality coming in and were they going to gel and how are they going to perform as a unit? Will they be top four? Do you think in the end both teams are okay with a, a 2-2 draw? Um, well, I think if Tottenham fans had gone into this one uh, and they, you told them they get a draw out of it at the end, they'd have bitten your hand off taking yeah. that. Given given their record there, I think Tottenham have had one win at Arsenal in the past 26 years. Arsenal have a very good record in the North London derby in September's, apparently. Haven't been beaten in one since 1969. Uh, they also, Arsenal, this is a fun fact, they have the highest win percentage in September of any Premier League club. Didn't see that one coming, but that's true. Um, I really did not see that one coming. No, I know, right? But uh, so so when Tottenham went two up, I was like, this is not going how I thought it was. To be honest, I expected kind of a narrow Arsenal win, given the form that Tottenham have showed so far this season and given also the form that Arsenal have shown this season. So, But like when Spurs were 2-0 up, it was kind of like they didn't really ter- deserve to be 2-0 mm. up at this point, did they? No, and in fact, I was really confused by it because I did not watch this one live. I watched the full replay after the fact, and somehow I had remembered that it finished one-to-one. So when the penalty is awarded and as it's about to be taken, I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, is VAR going to pull this back? Like, how how does this happen? And for like a minute or two after it was 2-0, I thought... Oh, okay, this is definitely coming back somehow. Something has gone wrong. And then I slowly realized that maybe I had it wrong. But I also agree with you, the more general point, that it did feel not necessarily against the run of play by any stretch, but just more so that 2-0 felt harsh because yeah. you saw the moments when Arsenal could have found a way through, probably should have found a way through, and were kind of executing their game plan. Uh, even if there were the moments of Unai Emery like pulling at his neck, his loose neck skin, which I really didn't need to see. They had like a 20-second <laughs> close-up of that. I was just like, I really, that's too much Unai Emery for me. But other than that, I thought Arsenal <laughs> looked good in those opening uh, opening 30 minutes or so. Yeah, the, sorry, I've just got that mental image now. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot for me. I really, I don't know what it is about necks. I have like a weird neck sensitivity apparently, but him just pulling that over and over again. I was like, dude, don't. You don't need to just go full turkey. Don't do that to yourself. Full turkey. Oh, wow. So <laughs> whose necks particularly offend you for the record? Oh, see, I don't I think it's just any time there's like, like it's like an uh, an older fella. I know I'm going to get there, so I'm not trying to like throw shade here, but it's an older fella wearing a slightly too small like dress shirt so that uh, it forces the skin out even more. So it's like a weird neck muffin top. It's a thing that no one needs to see. I think don't Trump and Mitch McConnell have that going on? Oh, yes, they do. Yeah, yes, they yeah. certainly, certainly do. Mitch McConnell leads the list. I'm sorry I didn't come up with that sooner. <laughs> Thank you for that assist, Ryan Bailey. This is why anyway, I need you on the show at all times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should probably talk. So- We've now talked neck waddles and tennis. Let's talk soccer. <laughs> but like the, the the two the two Spurs goals were basically mm-hmm. I felt were you know came essentially from Arsenal errors. Like mm-hmm. the way that Sun for the for the first goal. Yep. The way that some turned David Luiz despite mm-hmm. being about three yards away from David Luiz. It's like he wasn't even trying to get him. He was like forty yards up the pitch. That that seemed very odd for an, an, yeah. another instance in which Lewis has not covered himself in glory this season. Uh, so that's still not working out with me. That move, surprise, surprise. And then, yeah, that that was a that was a a, a gift of a goal. And then the second one, the Xhaka 
penalty. Have you ever seen a more stupid foul in the Premier League? I'm trying to. I couldn't. I couldn't think of another example of a, of a, of a dumber foul to commit. Like Son wasn't even winding up for a shot at that point. Nope. It was like, what on earth was he doing? Daryl and I often have like like the conversation about if you're watching a match uh, that you haven't yet seen, like if you're not watching it live, do you want to know what happened? And this to me is an example of why I often don't want to know why I want to approach games from a blind perspective because I knew there was like or I knew there was probably going to be a bad call on Shaka or there was going to be a bad play involving Shaka. Excuse me, definitely not a bad call. So when the penalty happened, it's one of those like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a penalty. Like, sure. Yeah, should have done that. Definitely a penalty. And then when, when you like type that into the running order, I was like, well, let me go back and look at this again. Cause I was just sort of like, eh, it's a bad penalty. No, yeah, it's real stupid. It's really, really, really yeah. stupid. It's one of the dumbest ones I can think because yeah, ball is gone. It doesn't need to happen. On top of that, the announcer makes a good point of this. I think in the moment that like you, it's really risky to go to ground in the penalty area, especially when there are numbers on both sides in that penalty area because so easily you can make contact and not mean to, and it's always going to be given because there's contact, because there's VAR. But to go in that recklessly with the ball gone and almost like go over the top making sure that he makes connection, like it, it, if I if I didn't know any better, I'd be like, maybe there was some money on that one because he went out of his <laughs> way to concede a penalty there. Well, he's got, it was, we know he's got a dumb foul in him, but the, the, the strangest thing about it is no card at all for that because it was kind of yeah. stugs up. I could easily see him getting a red card for that. I mean, it was reckless, certainly, and it was out of control. I feel like those that definitely generate like necessitates a yellow card in my book. Maybe the official thought because the penalty had been awarded that was enough, but I mean that that makes sense when it comes to like double jeopardy, but not when it comes to giving a yellow for a reckless tackle. That does. I mean, you could see the the shin go back, like not the shin, but the leg goes backward. Like you can see the impact. It's a dangerous, reckless challenge to me. That definitely should have been yellow uh, at the very least. Um, and, but like you're absolutely right that. In these moments, in the first 40 minutes or so, there were moments of Arsenal looking okay, and then there were those like those spots where it was just like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I was afraid of. It's David Luiz yeah. like not really being like quick enough to pay attention to Son finding that little gap. It's uh, Shaka making kind of silly decisions in the worst possible moments, and it was those sort of familiar concerns about Arsenal coming back and suddenly Tot number two nil up. What I found particularly interesting was that Arsenal were then able to fight back, which, as you said, given their record given their history, not necessarily that surprising. But I think it's another – I don't want to just do the thing of we break down a game by talking about one team. But, like, it it does feel to me like a huge part of this is Tottenham having a lot of concerns of their own. And especially uh, with the the goal for – who scores the second goal for Arsenal? Uh, Aubameyang. Thank you. Yeah, um, with the, the, the run from Ganduzi to set that one up, like just how he's able to sort of like, oh, okay, I still have time and space. Oh, okay, I still have time and space. Like I thought, I found, I found that to be particularly revealing with Spurs that they can be lights out for most of the game and then they'll just have these one or two minute chunks where they are sort of not quite quick enough to it. They don't quite step and that's when you get punished by a very good team. And so it did feel like some of the stuff we've been talking about with Tottenham that has been problematic already this season kind of reared its ugly head depending on your perspective uh here again this weekend yeah definitely i actually thought watching it i thought arsenal must have had about 70 percent possession mm-hmm. here it looks like they've been completely dominant it wasn't quite it was about 57 i think if you look at the official figures but it felt like they were being completely dominated particularly when arsenal were chasing chasing those goals as well and but just, when you just mentioned Genduzi there just reminding me that I, I seem to remember there was a moment when he had a, a shot 
and he already started running away celebrating. He was so sure that it got in. I think it was. I think it was pushed just wide. I love it when players do that. I, that that's so my. Sure. That's my favorite when you can go back and see the players start to celebrate. Sometimes it's great when they've. Like it's funny how that narrative is that when they score the like the screamer from thirty yards out and they're already celebrating. It's like he knew as soon as he hit it, like it was going to yeah. be in the back of the net. You never really talk about that time when they run off celebrating and the ball does not go in, and then it was less of a he knew and more so he really, really hoped it was going to go in because it would have been a cool highlight moment. Definitely, yeah. But having that kind of confidence in yourself, I think that's mm-hmm. wonderful. I like that a lot. But yeah, so the, no, no shortage of, uh, of problems at Tottenham, obviously, uh, with, with uh, dressing room unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And apparently Christian Eriksen settled now because he can't get away until at least <laughs> January, apparently. But then we had injury issues with this team as well, obviously with the right back being the main problem here. Mm-hmm. Imagine... Imagine being Serge Aurier right now and having Davinson Sanchez come in and play right back in your stead. Yeah. That's, that's not a good confidence booster for him, is it? No, I'd imagine not. And it, and it feels like there is going to be a, yeah, like even more positional uh, instability, uncertainty uh, there for Tottenham. Although, you're right, they've held on to their key players for yet another transfer window. Yeah. So it does feel like they now have to settle. And maybe that does get us back to a little bit more of the Spurs we've come to expect. Uh, but like... But overall, Ryan, I, I found this game really, really, really enjoyable because even though there were those mistakes, even though there were some like strange decisions, you saw both sides of it. That like for the uh, for Arsenal's first goal, uh, which Lacazette scores, it is David Luiz who like steps in when it seems like Tottenham have cleared and wins wins the header to keep the play alive, and yeah. so like not necessarily redeems himself, but you see that other aspect of David Luiz where he will come through and fight for everything and try to make something happen. And here he does, and it's a scrappy win from David Luiz. It's good work from Pepe and a good. Finish from Lacazette, but so it's those moments of like hard work and then skill combining is maybe what Arsenal have lacked in years past, and feels like maybe they have a bit more of this season. That said, mm. it is still both of these teams outside of the the top four at this point, which I guess isn't as surprising, but it still is is pretty surprising that both of them uh, find themselves out. Uh, Arsenal in fifth, Tottenham in ninth, uh, Manchester United in eighth, which leads me to my next question. Unless Ryan, you wanted to talk any more about the North London derby? No, I just wanted to make a note that you haven't put the Man United game on our running order. Uh, no, I did not. No, I did not. And the last said about <laughs> that you one, conveniently the better. Let that one off. I certainly did. Um, yeah, they were garbage once again. Uh, but <laughs> with that in mind, we can talk more about that or not. But with that in mind, it does feel like we are like obviously the Leicester title campaign. That one we was like a, an outlier, definitely in, included. But like for the first time in a long time, it feels like maybe we're in a position where we might see a non-traditional big six team find their way into certainly the top six spots, but potentially even the top four. Am I just getting yeah. like too excited about the weirdness of the beginning of the season? Like, do you, do you fully expect it to kind of even out over the course of the year? Or is there a chance that maybe we do see somebody like Everton or Leicester or Wolves finish inside that top four, if not the top six? Well, definitely inside the top six. I think those, those Everton, Wolves, Leicester chasing pack mm-hmm. have to be aiming for at least that. Because that, that's the very minimum they could achieve, and they'll never have a better job and a better chance of doing it. I mean, you look at look at Arsenal and the inconsistency of showing. Look at Chelsea, the way that you know they're certainly quite inconsistent. Look at Man United, who look like they'll be lucky to get in the top eight at the moment. Yeah. Even Tottenham look like they're going to have a sort of mm-hmm. odd season at this point. And I know it's early doors, obviously, but you have to think the chances. I, I mean, I haven't even checked the betting odds, but the, look at the odds of Leicester getting back into the Champions League. It, that's got to be worth a punt at this point, isn't it? Surely. I mean, especially, yeah, because if you look at, you've got Liverpool City. We know those two are going to be in the top four. Yeah, I think it's safe game. to say. I don't know, Daryl. I don't know, Ryan. I don't, I don't want to be too uh, too controversial here. Would you agree Liverpool City probably in the top four? 
I'd say there's a good chance. All right. Well, and so then right now, like worth noting, Leicester on eight. And then, I mean, you've still got what? Like Wolves are on three points. They're currently 17th, but it's still yeah. like five point difference. Not that big because it's so early in the season. But yeah, I mean, Arsenal and, and Spurs, as we already talked about, have had their moments of vulnerability, have looked like they're kind of weaker in certain positions and are having mm. to already fill spots and see what they can make work. Manchester United, very much the same <laughs> in a number of different ways. Uh, I feel like there's going to be a lot more drama to come uh, with Manchester, the red Manchester team. And then Chelsea, the same. Chelsea struggling this weekend with another draw uh, at home, I believe, to Sheffield United. So it does seem like you could back some teams that are a bit more settled and a bit more consistent. Uh, with their lineup choices, with their managers to make it a, a little bit deeper of a run, especially if you're looking at a team like Leicester who seem to have bought into Brendan Rodgers' system, seem to be enjoying playing for him, and seem to be getting the results as well, have not yet lost two wins, two draws, hence the eight points. So, I, yeah, I think we may well see a season where we do start to see some of the teams that we always sort of look at as like, oh, yeah, eventually they're going to fall away. Similar to Leicester when they won the title – kind of not falling away and hanging in uh that said in late november when leicester are like 12th and manchester united well are probably 13th but when arsenal and tottenham are third and fourth maybe i'll eat these words maybe so but like it's just making me think back to i mean it's a fool's errand to do pre-season predictions but we all do them and Mm -hmm. all the major outlets do them and i was was thinking obviously everyone had city and liverpool at the top most the majority of outlets had tottenham in Mm -hmm. third and then there was a sort of a mix-up for fourth place I had Man United in there because I thought it was definitely theirs for the taking, looking at the you know, the mm-hmm. vulnerabilities of Arsenal and Chelsea. And I just don't feel that way anymore, obviously. <laughs> I feel if I had yeah. to redo that, if I had to recast that top four, I'd probably still go for Tottenham in third, but I think I'd put Leicester in fourth. Yeah, I, I think I think that's probably safe. I, I would I would struggle between Leicester and Arsenal right now, mm-hmm. but I think I have maybe I have more question marks about Arsenal because I've seen them more often this season already because they are like a bigger team who generate more headlines. I mean, David Luiz being there alone makes me pay attention uh, for right and wrong reasons. But I, I take your point that it does seem like that's Arsenal's spot to lose right now because. As an example, like looking at Manchester United, there have been the kind of talks for years that that squad needs a complete overhaul. And you start to see it this summer when they're, they're moving out. I mean, Lukaku obviously moves for a lot of money, and that's maybe a separate issue. But looking at like some of the clearouts with like Darmian and Sanchez and Antonio Valencia being allowed to leave, and, and, and it goes on Chris Smalling and goes on from there. But then you look at the depth of that squad. And it's really not that deep. It's really yep. kind of vulnerable and kind of threadbare and has a lot of inexperience and then like almost too much inexperience of the wrong kind in certain positions. Fred still exists, for example. Uh, so <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, I think with, with all that said, it's a lot of teams who historically look very strong are dealing with lots of different issues in lots of different ways. And it does open the door for a team like Leicester and potentially maybe Arsenal. I mean, but that's still a, a, a big name team. I want Wolves and Leicester as three and four. Can we make that happen? I'd like it. I'd like it. And it's uh, either way, this is all very exciting for the neutral fan. I know we're not we're not necessarily going to focus on United, but I just do like this statistic. Since Solskjaer was permanently appointed, yep. United's league record, 1-3, mm-hmm. drawn 4, lost 5, goal difference, minus 4. They've had one clean sheet. My only complaint with that is that it felt like goal difference needed to be negative six to make that three, four, five, six, and then it would have been really, really perfect. Uh, <laughs> unless you're a Manchester United fan, in which case it's the absolute worst. Correct. Yeah. 
What, Isn't that fun though? Ryan, what like okay, so you have no vested interest in Manchester United. Uh I I guess I'm guessing people will not be surprised at all to find out that we end up talking about them in the weekend review because that's what I do. Um like for you, is this a fun thing for Manchester United who had all the success and who had I feel like most of the time when you met somebody in the United States, there was a period of time when you'd ask them who they support. They supported Manchester United. Yeah. And I'm guessing that made you roll your eyes a little bit. Uh, I have experienced the eye roll uh, in my face several times. Not from you, but just generally speaking. <laughs> so is it sort of nice? Like I never know how to pronounce that word. Like schadenfreude to like enjoy the sort of downfall of Manchester United? Or would you? is it more fun to have like a dominant team to challenge the other bigger teams? I, I am wary of uh, exercising too much Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. definitely. Thank but, you. But uh, also, I do. I'm. I'm. My default setting is to always cheer for the underdog. I always want the yep. small team to do better. So when a Man United one of the Goliath is felled by a David, I always think that's a great thing. <laughs> and it's not just because it makes Man United fans unhappy. It's because it makes a smaller team happy. That's mainly. That's mainly my my thought process. But also makes me a little bit sad. I don't want to see you sad, Tay-Tay. I want you to be happy. <laughs> well, I I believe that and I appreciate that even if I don't really believe that. Uh, but <laughs> I also do believe in today's uh, sponsor. It's our friends over at SeatGeek. Ryan Bailey, I know you are often uh, attending the concerts. You're quite the musical person. Um but you can use SeatGeek to help you attend those concerts and make it uh, very easy. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews. Uh, they pull together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they have an interactive map to help you figure out where those seats are going to be. So if you do attend as many concerts or live events as Ryan Bailey, you can just, uh, you know, it's a couple clicks and it's done, and you don't even have to worry about it anymore. Very much so. It's not just live music. They've got the sports on there. Mm. They've got the comedy. They've got everything you can want uh, uh, um, um, tickets for. I've got the app on my phone. The app is pretty nifty. I do like the desktop version as well, but the app is really good too. I think it's the fastest. It's the easiest way to get tickets. Uh, so you should probably go do that and join my summer concert series. My latest one, I'm going to see Hootie and the Blowfish and Bare Naked Ladies because I refuse to leave 1996. Wow. This week. What was what was Bare Naked Ladies? That, that wasn't It's Ben, was it? It's Ben. That is them? Oh, boy. All right. That's that's terrific stuff, Ryan. (laughs) They couldn't fit Smash Mouth in there? They were too busy? So I get this. I'm going to some like barbecue festival, and the the, uh, the lineup is um, it's Fuel, Tonic, Lifehouse. Like every every one of these sort of tier three rock bands from the 90s is playing at this festival. It's going to be glorious. That's in a few weeks as well. <laughs> and if you want to attend that glorious festival or any other 90s band reunion uh, concert, you can do so. And SeatGeek will even give you $10 off your first purchase. All you need to do is use our promo code. So download the SeatGeek app today. Use promo code TSS for $10 off your first purchase. As Ryan mentioned, it's not just concerts. It's any live performance, sporting event, uh, comedy show, theater, you name it. And just use that promo code TSS for $10 off your first purchase. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode. Ryan, you've made me sad talking about the Premier League. Can we instead uh, talk about the Bundesliga for a moment? Yeah. Let's All right. do it. It was. Why did it make you sad? Because because your team's not doing very well. Be, be, because it's just kind of an expectation at this point. Like it really was. Uh, like all right, we're back on United for a moment. Because it really was <laughs> that. Like even when they were up one nil, I was like, yeah, they're still going to concede. Like that's just what they do. They don't keep clean sheets. And and it still is the case that like I I fail to see them 
sort of really dominating a game or c- completely taking it over. And so it feels like they keep having these moments of like, oh, we're doing fine, but then we let the team back in and then we kind of change the game plan or it doesn't look nearly as unified. And so once I started seeing Victor Lindelof start dribbling forward, I was like, oh, here we go. This is where it mm-hmm. comes from. And certainly, or, and sure enough, that's where it happens. So it's just more the like reminder that as other teams are doing interesting things and making smart moves and bringing through young players successfully and having a coach and a, you know, a front office direction that makes sense uh the team that i support uh less so it's just the inevitability that they're gonna uh cough it up has become a super fun thing um let me flip your question on to you Mm -hmm. if if liverpool were having the kind of time that man united are having right now would you Mm -hmm. get the schadenfreude tingles um i don't think so i think it would be like this isn't quite what you're asking but my answer is only if it was like man city at this point because i don't really have the like the animosity towards Liverpool because so many of my friends are Liverpool fans more so than they are Manchester United fans that like I would want a little bit of happiness for them but I would also not be as like gleeful in their downfall as if City just completely imploded because of the nobody was rooting for Manchester City outside of people who were from Manchester in like the late 90s early 2000s like so so the folks that now root for them I sort of look at them the way probably people looked at me when I said I rooted for Manchester United and I'm okay with that. (laughs) <laughs> Very good. That was a concise answer. Thank you. I, I try, my friend. I try. Um, but also, I hope uh, neither team wins the title this year. That's what I always root for. Uh, oh. In the Bundesliga, we had some surprise results, uh, including a, a surprise goal for a certain American. We'll talk about that one in a moment. But I want to talk about Union Berlin 3 Borussia Dortmund won. Not a result uh, I saw coming at all, Ryan. I'm guessing you did not either. Did you uh, get to a chance to watch uh, some of this game? And if so, did you enjoy the pyrotechnics at halftime? I didn't. See, I, I, I watched extended highlights. Okay. I did not see pyrotechnics, but what I did see was mm-hmm. the fact that I want to go to that stadium right. so much. The stadium under Alten Forest Drei, as we oh mentioned before, yeah. it's a, it just looks like the, it looks like the action's really close to the pitch. It looks mm-hmm. very sort of tall and packed in there. I, did you know that they did an expansion of that stadium in 2013? Literally, it was built by the fans, volunteers, no. like a few thousand fans oh helped build the stadium themselves. How cool is that? It's very cool, and it's a very cool stadium, and you've got everybody wearing red and white, so it looks it looks nice and unified. And then there was, I believe Dortmund fans, fans as well had like a, a, an organized thing where they set off a bunch of flares, but then so too did the Union uh, fans. And it was just very cool to see basically half the stadium on fire in a non-threatening, non-terrifying way. But then you had, <laughs> like, uh, like there was almost a moment when you couldn't see a goal kick being taken because there was so yeah. much smoke. And I think uh, Union's second goal sort of comes around at the time that there is a bunch of smoke on the field. So for a moment, I was obsessed with the idea that, like, did the smoke play a part? Could people not see anything as a result? But it, that ne- wasn't necessarily the case, but I totally agree. I went and showed my wife the highlights of this game solely to say, hey, do you want to take a trip to Berlin sometime this season? Because I really want to see them play live. Yeah, it, it just looks fantastic. It looks like... The- a really good atmosphere they were creating in there. As we know, the Bundesliga is famous for those at the best of times. But what a, what a great moment for these guys. Mm-hmm. Their first ever Bundesliga win here. They had 26% of possession yep. in this game. 26%. And they got a 3-1 win. That's Obviously, that's a lot more damning for, for Dortmund yep. than it is uh, praise for Berlin, perhaps. But they had 15 shots to, to Dortmund's 13 as well. So And Dortmund only had two shots on target. And it, it's... it's for me, this felt like another example, and it's something we've seen a few times in the Premier League this season, of a big established side getting turned over by a small, physical, mm-hmm. less expansive side on sort of unexpectedly. And it's happened quite a few times this season already, hasn't it? 
It has. And and with that in mind, we've talked about this I talked about this last week with like some of the like the smaller tier Premier League teams kind of setting up blueprints for how to handle larger opposition. Here I think we have a pretty good one. Now, historically Dortmund don't do very well against promoted sides. Uh at yep. Royce S Z N on Twitter pointed out they've only won two of their eight games against newly promoted teams since twenty sixteen. Seven points out of a possible twenty four. That might have helped them say last season when they maybe needed a few points uh to win the title. Uh yeah. and but it felt like what Union did, you're absolutely right, very small percentage of possession. But at the same time, they did try to play against Dortmund. They did have some really nice passing moves. They tried to go at Dortmund. And it felt like they tried to combine technical skill with physicality when the situation required. They went for very design set pieces. That's where the first goal comes from. It's a, it's a like very much set like drawn out like like specified set piece that ends up working to that extent. The third goal also uh, kind of a result of a set piece. It's a poorly yeah. cleared header that ends up being a goal. Second is a very bad giveaway from Manuel Akanji who gets under pressure, and that's another thing Union did was kind of put Dortmund under pressure when they saw the opportunities. And it felt like this combination of sit deep, counter aggressively, but also try to like don't just have like one player run with the ball as fast as they can. It sort of felt like when they saw the counterattack on, they sent those numbers forward and kind of risked it a little bit, and it ended up working out. And for Dortmund... It seems like it's a little bit more of the same, that like it's a team that we expected to come out, kind of hit the ground running, blow everybody away, and come December, it's like they've won every single game, Munich have won every single game, or like Munich have drawn one game, so now there's a two-point gap, and it's going to be this race. And then there are these moments in these games when it feels like Dortmund still are sort of that old Dortmund, that they don't get off the ground. The first 20 minutes were very sluggish from, from Dortmund and from Union to some extent, but I think they were matching what was being presented to them. But this game... Definitely reduced my hype a little bit for the the title race to come. I still I'm not saying that it's like Bayern Munich's won. There were definitely some people on the internet I saw making that argument. But I think this weekend kind of tempered some of my expectations in a couple of different leagues for what I thought might be the case for say Tottenham and Arsenal, and also maybe for Dortmund. Maybe Dortmund just need to get it together a little bit if they want to keep challenging Bayern Munich. Yeah, definitely, and. Yeah, I, I I don't I saw those arguments as well. Like this is could be really damaging for Dortmund's title run. But you've got to remember how bad Munich were in yeah. the first half of last season as <laughs> exactly. well. Exactly, so it, it is very early doors. I'm mm-hmm. just looking up the the referee in this game, mm-hmm. Doctor Felix Breich. Breicht. Yeah, Doctor. <laughs> this surprises you. Um, he's also a lawyer. Yeah. He he is he is I only know him because he is so recognizable. He is I think like Germany's like top tier official. You see him at the World Cup all the time. Yeah. You see him in the Champions League. That's right. I did not know he was a doctor or a lawyer. But it is very it feels very German in my opinion to like have a referee who's also has a doctorate and is also a lawyer. That just feels like a very like oh yeah, of course. I just did that in my spare time. It was no problem. That oh, is on, he's, he's not like Doogie Howser and also like a hotshot lawyer. He's a he's a qualified doctor of law. I've just looked it up. Okay. Even he wrote so, his doctorate about sport. Even so, the Germans that I've interacted with here in the US and then abroad, it is always this very nonchalant air of like, oh yeah, like I like designed a car for Volkswagen. It was no big deal. I just did it like it's just a fun thing. I do sometimes like what that's excuse me like oh yeah I just like manage all of Germany's handball leagues it's not a big deal like it's very (laughs) hand wavy to things that feel like they should be major accomplishments so yes of course the center official here is also a qualified lawyer slash legal doctor uh, which also feels like it should be a show legal doctors legal doctors (laughs) Dr. Bleich 
<laughs> there we go. Well, the, your German's so good. Uh, so, uh, commiserations to Dortmund fans. Congratulations to Union Berlin, and thank you for that lovely, lovely stadium. Uh, I definitely want to go. Maybe Ryan and I will have to make a, a pilgrimage there sometime this season. Uh, congratulations as well to Schalke, a 3-0 win over Hertha. And I was really relieved because I had uh, my concerns about Schalke last week. Uh, that said... It took until the third goal for Schalke to actually have a Schalke player get on the score sheet. Uh, the first two goals were own goals. Schalke go up 2-0 without putting a shot on the frame. Then the third goal comes in. It's a rocket from Jean-Joe Kenny. Really, really well hit. I'm guessing Daryl got really excited about this one. But he was not, he's not here today to talk about it. So, Ryan, I wanted to ask you, do you get as excited when like young English or British players do things on a global scale like the way Daryl does? Like Adam Lookman playing for Leipzig a couple seasons ago. I think he's back there now. But when he was playing there, Daryl would get kind of excited. Jaden Sancho the same. Like He would always be kind of up for young Englishmen doing things. Do you have that same level of enthusiasm? Um, I think so. I think to a certain extent because – Historically, it's been very rare for Englishmen to go abroad. I mean, when I, when I, you know, there was a long time where there was no English players abroad at all, and it was only like Owen Hargreaves abroad. And then mm. when David Beckham went, it's like, oh, oh yeah. David Beckham's in Spain. That's quite rare because it, it seems generally quite rare for Englishmen to go abroad. And obviously, there's yeah. quite a lot more of it going on now. So I like it, and I like seeing Jaden Sancho in the Bundesliga and, and John Joe Kenny. I just like people called John Joe as well. I like it's so <laughs> scouse. I like it so much. I, when I when I I forgot he was there, and I was like, John Joe, that's not German. <laughs> nice try, <laughs> sir. You're clearly on loan from somebody. Um, yeah, and it, and and to emphasize your point, like it was only a couple seasons ago when Joe Hart went to Torino and that in and of itself was a big story about like ooh Joe Hart going to Italy like right. why would you do such a thing and it is strangely you know there's clubs in England he could play for <laughs> exactly exactly and then he realized that and immediately went back but for one <laughs> brief period uh, it was nice for him and uh, for one time yesterday it was very nice uh, for Weston McKinney I felt like just very briefly that was uh, one of his better games for Schalke in terms of him like doing well and also the system not leaving him vulnerable. I've seen him at a couple times. Um, they were in a couple of different games this season looking very much like hung out or he had to step out to like put out a fire. He had to deal with somebody else's mistake. And in this game, I think he was allowed to stay a bit more central, allowed to stay home a little bit more. Yes, he still stepped out. Yes, he still went on marauding runs because he's Weston McKinney. He almost sets up a goal at one point. Mm. Via, I think the second goal actually comes about from him transitioning from the counter uh, and like takes the ball 80 yards upfield, uh, ends in an own goal, obviously. But it, it seemed like the system is starting to gel a little bit with Schalke and that's making him look all the better. So for me, a person who does root for young Americans uh, doing anything ever. Uh, yes, this was a game where I got uh, pretty pumped for him, pretty happy for John Joe Kenny, pretty happy for two own goals, and happy for Schalke to get all three points. Are you happy for David Wagner as well? Yes, I am. Why not? Good. Let's be happy Good for everybody. Let's, let's spread the happiness. One of the things I liked about this game as well, the first own goal, which was very unfortunate, got in the way of that sort of cutback yeah. cross. But it was it was scored by a player called N. Stark, which is just, mm -hmm. I love Game of Thrones references wherever I can find them, <laughs> frankly. My, my favorite thing about that one, I watched this a bunch, and I may be totally wrong, but uh, when, like, in the lead up to that goal, moments before, it's uh, Caligiuri is the one who forces the ball that ends in the own goal. He gets knocked over by uh, Rekic, the defender for uh, Hertha. And you can see him thinking he's going to get a free kick. He doesn't. It goes out for a throw-in instead. And Stambouli, the defender, comes into the shot about a couple seconds later. And for... 
I wrote it down, 16 straight seconds is screaming at Kalajuri for not fighting hard enough to keep that ball. Like, you see Stambouli grabbing the the badge of Schalke and, like, pleading with him to be more aggressive and to work harder. To the extent you see Weston McKinney walk by and give him this sort of, like, hey, man, like, calm it down. Everything's fine. No need to scream. And yet... Like um, less than a minute later, it's basically Kalajari who muscles through a defense and like slides to, slides to keep the ball in bounds and squares it, and that's when it gets turned in for the own goal. And he does so by like outworking Rekic to get to that. So I do feel like that narrative in there of like Stambouli like elevating and making people like pick up their intensity. I hope that's the case because if so, it turns out that screaming at people totally works, and we should just do it all the time. That's a good a good way of living your life, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, yeah what, could, what, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Not, <laughs> definitely not the worst possible takeaway. Ryan, uh, final Bundesliga game I wanted to get to very briefly. Werder Bremen 3, uh, Augsburg 2. I'm guessing you it will come as no surprise that I want to talk about Werder Bremen's second goal because yes. it's scored by Josh Sargent. Uh, uh, the greatest American goal scorer of all time, I believe, now is is what we're going with. Um, he, I, I am still sort of at a loss on this one because I cannot tell if this is an excellent series of like like moments of skill or if it was just kind of a freak moment of insanity that ended up working out and i know my american bias is telling me that no it was all skillful it was excellent and it was improvisation uh but i would i would like to know where you come down on this goal because it's just sergeant basically settling a long ball kind of settles into himself and then flicks it over the goalkeeper and runs around and then uh kind of insteps it into the goal but some of that was a little bit luck i think his first touch is maybe unintentional but then he's able to recover so ryan for you is this moment of genius or is this maybe fortuitous moment are you asking me to burst your bubble right now? Because that's what I'm kind of leaning towards. Are you? All right, let's do it. <laughs> well, just uh, let, don't get me wrong. Very lovely finish. And I think once mm-hmm. you got past the keeper, it was very nicely done. And obviously collecting the ball in the first place. But the the, the fact that the, the first touch sort of cannons off his yeah. own chest, it just feels yeah. like an element of luck to it. As, as good as that goal yeah. was, I still think it's not uh, it's not a beautiful goal. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because the way I saw it initially was like, what a beautiful goal, a world class goal, like oh, such like technical skill. And he brings the ball down over the top. That that is true. Like he's able to settle it. It doesn't like go off of his toe and go out for a goal kick. So right there, we're already you know doing okay. Yeah. But I, I take your point though that he settles it into his chest and then it kind of pops out and then he's able to basically get a foot on it to lift it over the goalkeeper. And to me, that's the improvisation, which still requires technical skill. But yeah. I think the word you said there that's really key is like beautiful. And if he had settled it with one touch, lobbed the goalkeeper with another, and then finished with a third touch on the instep, then it's a beautiful goal. But that one little like off his chest and then he has to improv, it removes beautiful and instead is like it's a very, very good goal with some technical skill in there. Yeah. Not necessarily a beautiful world-class goal in my opinion. Exactly. I think if that was Dennis Bergkamp, he would have brought it down on the tip of his toe and sort of tucked it away. That's the one. Yes. <laughs> so even, so we can agree that Josh Sargent is not Dennis Bergkamp, but still scored a pretty good goal for Werder Bremen, and Americans should probably be excited about that given the lack of options when it comes to a central striker for the U.S. national team. You good with that in summary? In principle, we can agree he is not Dennis Bergkamp. Yeah, okay. I'll go that far. But it's been, a, it's been a great week for him, hasn't it, with his United States Mutant Ninja Turtle call-up. You know, uh, he, he's only still a teenager. He's got his second career start for, for Werder as mm-hmm. well. I think it's, he, he's going places, isn't he? This is his great great stuff for him all right and and a ginger no less so you, you, we can uh we can all root for that as well ryan bailey sure we can <laughs>
I just, like ginger. I was just, I was just wondering, I was just wondering if, if I was going to bring out any like strong feelings uh, towards or against gingers from Ryan Bailey. But instead, we're going to talk about Scottish stuff later. So let's let's save. It. <laughs> All right, let's save it instead. Let's talk about today's sponsor, Dollar Shave Club. Um, when I talk about Dollar Shave Club, I want to stress the quality of their products for a moment. Uh, Daryl is not here, but that man loves the Dollar Shave Club prep scrub. I think because it's like his first introduction to exfoliation. Not that oh. it's a, something that I am like uh, very well versed in, but the way he's like, it, it's got little like tough stuff that cleans your skin. It's so amazing. Like he really, really enjoys it. And I think for Daryl to get that excited about a bathroom product is not a thing I am used to. He is not a man who talks to me about his uh, his grooming habits, his styling products, so that he routinely goes back to that prep scrub. I feel like that right there is evidence of the uh, the quality of the products coming through from Dollar Shave Club. Very much so, yeah. And it's not just about razors, as you say, that they've got you covered from head to toe. They've got mm-hmm. everything you need in the shower for your shaving needs, for styling your hair, brushing your teeth. And, Tay-Tay, we're going to need to expand on this one. They even have you covered for wiping your behind. <laughs> they, they do. They've got uh, one-wipe Charlies. They've essentially got, like, uh, like wet wipes, very nice high-quality, like, peppermint, like, lavender uh, wet wipes that are very nice for, you know, cleaning cleaning your undercarriage if maybe, like, you know, the, the, the toilet paper's one ply in the area that you're living in. Maybe that's not what you want. That's not giving you the comfort you need. Dollar Shave Club has you covered there. <laughs> undercarriage but- is such a great term. I, you know, I, I, we've between between Dollar Shave Club and Manscaped, we've we've really had to work on uh, our euphemisms for shaving areas. Is I guess what I'm going to get to there. Definitely so. But one of the, in all seriousness, one of the good things about Dollar Shave Club is they keep you automatically stocked up as mm-hmm. well, and it doesn't matter the time scale you're using, whether it's once a month, a few times a year. They got you covered when you need it. You get it, baby. That's right. And right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test. Their ultimate shave starter set has basically everything you need for an amazing shave. The executive razor, shave butter, prep scrub, and post-shave do. The best part is you can try it for just $5. After that, the restock box ships regular-sized products at regular prices. So get your ultimate starter set for just $5, as Tay-Tay says. The <laughs> website you'll need to go to is dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TSS for your $5 starter pack. Sounds good to me, Taylor. Sounds good to me, Rye Rye. Uh, thank you very much to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring today's episode. Ryan, we've been in the Premier League. We've been in the Bundesliga. Shall we move briefly to Serie A? Let's do some calcio. All right, some calcio. Uh, Juve with a 4-3 win over Napoli. This might have been the strangest game of the weekend, even though there were lots of strange results. Uh, Juventus go up 3-0, then Napoli pull it back to 3-3, and then Juve, I'm going to say luck into a 4-3 win. Ryan, where do you want to start with this one? Lots of interesting stuff here. Yeah, both uh, Napoli centre-backs getting on the score sheet, but for very different <laughs> reasons, very unfortunately. I love the fact that Napoli only plays seven goal thrillers now. That seems to be their, their <laughs> it seems that way, right? That's God. all they do. And I, I, I love watching this iteration of Juventus. It seems like they're super positive now. You know, lots of pressing forward. It's kind of, mm-hmm. this is what they can be, isn't it? And it's a little bit gung-ho, obviously, conceding three goals. A bit, mm-hmm. little bit less uh, what they were last season. But I like that. It seems a bit more cavalier, doesn't it? it oh, it definitely does. And But it also felt like it was a Juve team that, as I said, went up 3-0. Uh, really, really great system of pressing. I, I like... 
for no reason other than because I enjoyed it so much. Like I like documented it. I took screenshots of when essentially they just force Napoli into doing exactly what Napoli don't want to do. They but kind of pass themselves into a literal corner and have no out and end up losing the ball and then Juve score straight from there. And that and that in of itself is a really good combination of like I think it's the one where Matuidi plays in Costa and Costa finds Ronaldo. For, maybe it's the third goal, but just the pressure and how intense they were, like causing Napoli problems, made me think like, oh, this is going to be five or six nil. We they're going to get some players out. Juve will to rest them for games still to come. And then Carlo Ancelotti makes uh, two changes at halftime. He brings on Chucky Lozano. He brings on Mario Rui. And Napoli mm. pull three goals back. And that to me was what we talked about last week. To your point about like seven goal thrillers, that with this Napoli team, they have so much attacking talent that they can change it up at halftime. Carlo Ancelotti obviously has that managerial acumen to make those changes and they can come out and pull three back on a team like Juventus who even if they took their foot off the gas a little bit are still Juventus and that is why I think Napoli is going to be such a fun team to watch that said they won't get to play Matias Delict every single week and that may have been a key factor as well in this game yeah he he didn't look so hot did he no he did not uh uh, he had a terrible second half especially um he keeps uh napoli players on side for for one goal he Mm. i think on both free kick goals uh the first and the third he loses his mark he he falls on the ground and then somebody else has to come in and foul for these that leads to the second goal so it was just really really poor work from matias delith in a way that you maybe expect him to be a bit more solid given the money invested but still then it's easy to forget how young he is and there were signs in this one of like oh right still a little bit of ways to go before he is that kind of lockdown Giorgio Chiellini-esque defender yeah best new signing for Juventus obviously Danilo though getting that first goal he's on the field for about 30 seconds That's before insane. he got the goal it was crazy yeah. <laughs> and a good reminder of Napoli when you do your design set pieces which they did they had I think six people afford then they did like a short corner and three more people come into the screen and it was basically yeah. supposed to be a like 10 yard back pass then that pass is driven across the top of the 18 where there's three Napoli players who are like late arriving and then I think one of them is theoretically supposed to get a shot but if that pass is under hit or the shot is blocked and then Juve kind of collect the ball, now it's 4v1, which is exactly what happened. And it's a quick counterattack. Juve able to score. But yes, that's not a, uh, a bad way to make your debut like 15 seconds after coming on. <laughs> yeah, uh, so well done there. Less well done to Koulibaly, who, as you mentioned, did get his name on the score sheet, just not the way he expected. Of all the own goals we've already talked about and of all the own goals that happened this weekend, was that the worst own goal of the weekend? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay. Because the, the splice off the shin kind of mm-hmm. finish. The the hardest part is that there were five, I think it was five UV players offside when the free kick came in. Yeah. Because none of them technically were involved in play because Kudawali <laughs> took care of it himself. The goal it, stood, which is so rough. That's it's, such a rough way to lose. It's so rough. And really, like, for... It goes against the, like, Hollywood narrative structure of, like, 3-0 down at halftime, you fight back to 3-3... And it's, and it's, as I said, it's Matias Delict looking so sloppy that if they were a center back who like, okay, it was 3-0, then Napoli pull it to 3-3, this game is going to finish 4-3 with a center back making an own goal mistake. You would have thought it was probably Matias Delict and that's the kind of narrative. Instead, for Koulibaly, who's the rock of central defense to kind of have it go off his left shin when he was just trying to clear the ball and it goes perfectly into the goal. Not the way I saw this one going, but uh, if this is how things are going to go in Serie A this season in terms of the title race and how close it might be, then I'm in for it. Then I'm yeah. all good for Serie A this year. Definitely. Definitely proven those people wrong who still think Serie A is all about 
boring 1-0 wins, basically. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Napoli are certainly doing their part to uh, yeah. remind people of that one. Uh, we should stay in Europe, though. Uh, more Serie A uh, later on. But we didn't really want to get into, like, like later on in terms of future weekend reviews. We didn't really want to get into, like, Rome, Lazio. It finished 1-1. But neither one of us watched it. Neither one of us was that, like, invested in it. So instead, I want to talk about some other weird results because both Osasuna or both Barcelona and Real Madrid drew this weekend. Barcelona with Osasuna. Mm. Villarreal uh, drawing with Real Madrid. Uh, late there. Ryan, what were you uh, thinking from these two games? Which one did you find more surprising? Probably, uh, well, obviously both um, Archbishop Desmond 2-2 results, um, but probably Osasuna. Mm -hmm. Newly promoted Osasuna, uh, keeping Barcelona uh, uh, um, at home like that. It's just once again feeding into the narrative of they're looking lost for ideas without Messi. Obviously, they, they sort of bypassed that last week. The mm-hmm. narrative fell away last week, but it's back on, baby. It's back on. It and really is. <laughs> it's just a very odd performance from them again. They didn't have a single shot on or off target in the first 20 minutes. Just a, a very odd one from them, wasn't it? Yes, and, and and I think you're, again, if we're like going with developing narratives, as we have been so far in this show, like you're absolutely right that without Lionel Messi, you see... Some of the like pedestrian aspects of this squad. It's still Barcelona. They're still one of the, if not the best teams in the world. But like, mm. it's, it's just so interesting to see that when you don't have a player like Messi, who so clearly strikes so much fear into the heart of teams and like an Osasuna team that, as you said, newly promoted, going up against Lionel Messi, even though they've done it before. But like, to go up against him, it always makes you a little bit more wary. You're a little bit nervous. You're a little bit aware of where he is at all times. And if you yeah. have 10% of your focus on one player, as like a team, then sorry, I just whacked my mic. I was so excited to talk about it. Then like you're not going to be as focused, and you're and other things will happen. Other players will be able to score if you remove Messi from the equation. You do see Barcelona. There were a couple different times when I saw Gerard Pique do the thing we've seen him do, where he kind of strides forward with the ball, makes a penetrating run, and then he would put his foot on it and look around, and there just wasn't much movement. There wasn't a lot of mobility, and it made me understand a bit more why why Barca have really been back into the market for Neymar uh, at time of recording. I, mean, I guess the window is closed, so we can say confidently that that deal has collapsed. Neymar stays with PSG. So what do you think happens next for either PSG and Neymar or for Barcelona this season? Oh, boy, that's the two very separate questions, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I, You can answer whichever it, one you want, my friend. <laughs> it, it, it feels like... Now, I finally understood this weekend why Barcelona were pushing so hard for Neymar because mm-hmm. I was sort of scratching my yeah, head about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. Now I see that when you're starting a 16-year-old who got his first, mm-hmm. you know, got that goal as well, who's uh, Ansu Fati, who was very good, um, to be fair, came on as a substitute and got the goal. But, y- yeah... <laughs> I, I could see why they wanted to bring him back mm-hmm. now, even despite the, the acrimonious way in which he left the club. As for his role at PSG, I mean, when does he get back in the team now? Does he roll straight back in now? I have no idea. I have no I idea would... what happens at this point. Is he, still, no, is he even no in no Paris? I. I, don't know. <laughs> I know he's not. He's in Florida, uh, I believe, because I think that's where Brazil are doing their uh, national team training. So I think he's reported uh, with Brazil. So he's right. he's somewhere in the Western Hemisphere right now. Uh, when he comes back, I, I would hope he doesn't go straight into it. But like that, that maybe is the test right there, because if he doesn't go straight in the lineup, but you don't hear anything about it, then maybe that's him 
showing like like he can be conciliatory and can be a little bit contrite if he comes back and maybe Tuchel doesn't start him right away and he instantly complains and goes public about his frustration well then mm. we know it's just kind of uh, business as usual for Neymar but I really strongly agree with your point about how this weekend kind of cemented why Barcelona wanted him back because I was I was really unclear about that and you look at the signings they've made in recent memory and it just felt like you you have so much attacking talent you have so much like so many options, so much versatility. Why do you want Neymar back? And then you watch this game this weekend, and you think like, "Oh yeah, right," because he knows the system and is very good, or at least mm. was very good when he played for you. Was expected to be that heir apparent, so maybe you bring him back and you expect him to elevate that game a little bit. Um, but that has not happened. But it does beg the question from Michael Jinn. What exactly did happen to Neymar? Uh, it wasn't too long ago that he was widely considered the third or fourth best player in the world. Then it seems like he left Barca and everything went to hell. Was PSG just a bad fit? Did he plateau in terms of individual skill? Did we all just overestimate him while he was at Barcelona? How did everything seemingly go so wrong? Uh, Ryan, why don't you just uh, answer that one fully and completely? Okay, here it goes. Um, I, th- <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, I think PSG is a bad... No, they, they, I don't know. That was the answer. No, that's not the answer. I... I th- I think PSG was a bad fit for him, but I think the main reason why we've seen this decline is injuries, to be honest. I mean, yep. you, I, was, I was looking at his numbers on transfer marks, and he missed last season 180 days. The season before that, he missed 115 days. Mm-hmm. And we know he's sort of an individualist who doesn't necessarily fit into all sides and all, 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 all manner of sides. Well, he probably would have done better for Barcelona than they did at the weekend, but... His numbers are down as well. Like I think last season it was 15 goals and three assists, which I think is down on his Barca numbers when he was sharing those numbers with one of the best, if not the best, attacking trident the game's ever seen. So my 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 theory is that it's just injury has really derailed him, and maybe some off the field stuff that's been a bit unfortunate as well. Um, her, her sort of taking his focus away yeah. from where it should be. I agree with that uh, for the most part because I do think injury is a massive, massive part of this and that he, he tends to be on the sidelines for like the, the game against Man United with the handball last season. Like he's not there for that game. Some of that is due to suspension and his attitude problems. Some of it is due to injury, certainly. I think the move to PSG was really ill-fated or Maybe not that wise of a decision in retrospect, or maybe even at the time, because yeah, right. But like, but even at the time, it seemed confusing to me because the narrative was he does he's tired of playing second or third or maybe even fourth fiddle at Barcelona. He wants to be the main man. He wants to go and like lead a team to victory, and he chose PSG, and and. It, that's a team that are going to win league uh, every year unless they completely explode. Already mm. have a lot of of solid talent who are capable of doing big things, and so essentially what you're saying is he's going to come in and we're going to win the Champions League because that's yeah. the only thing they haven't done. And so he instantly is putting him, himself under pressure to make that happen. But the Champions League is a fickle mistress. Uh, like you, you never know how it's going to go. One one bad game in a knockout round, and you're done. And so instantly you've got a ton of pressure that's going to be really difficult to achieve. But on top of that, you're playing a lot of games in Ligue 1 because that's where PSG play. I don't know if you knew that. They play in France. But it means like you're not going to get a strong of opposition consistently. You're going to get kicked a lot. You're going to mess around. Maybe you're going to be less focused a a slight bit. League games aren't going to matter as much, at least not as consistently. And so it invites distraction. It invites you taking your eye off the ball a little bit in a way that maybe playing for a, like a top-tier Barcelona team or had he gone to, not saying this was ever on the table, but like say he'd gone to Bayern Munich. Say he goes and plays under Pep at, at Man City. Does he have that level of a distraction? Is he allowed to kind of slack off? No, probably not. And I think 
this is where I do come into the conspiracy of I think he knew he couldn't go to Real Madrid straight from Barcelona, and I think that was the team that he felt like, I can go there, I can cement my reputation, I can take that team over because Ronaldo's going to leave mm-hmm. eventually or sooner rather than later, and then that can be my squad. And the way things have gone for Madrid, they basically just kind of weren't in a position to make that happen this summer or when it seemed like it could have happened. And so I think all of those combine to put Neymar in a position where he is no longer this young, super talented, super exciting player. He is a relatively young like player who is now not in the top three in the world, like maybe in the top 20. And I say that saying like, I don't know, I'm not even sure if he's there right now. And so it just, it's, it's, it's a really surprising fall for a player who in 2014, I was sure was going to be the next massive thing. And now here we are. I think you're, you're spot on with the crux of it being that he went, that he went to PSG in the belief that he will be the difference maker to win yeah. in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. That hasn't worked out because, as you say, no. it is a fickle mystery. Not it's so much. not quite predictable, those those games you have to play to do that. And that doesn't necessarily revolve around one player making the difference. Not so much. Um, and he, he's fallen out of the shop window a little bit because of that, mm-hmm. hasn't he? And you, he, you just yeah. think if he was still at Barcelona, he'd still be in the conversation. If he was still at, if he was at Real Madrid, if he'd gone to Chelsea, if he'd done some, one of those other things, mm-hmm. I think he'd be much higher in the conversation um, uh, you, but he'd you, still, I mean, he'd still argue have had those injuries. He still arguably, arguably would have had those setbacks. But still, he probably won't look back too fondly on that choice to go to France. Yeah, it's it's definitely like chaos theory, butterfly effects, sliding doors, whatever other movies are in there. That like, but like, if he's playing for a team where maybe he's told be less flashy, like, is he as flashy when he picks up some of those injuries? I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's difficult and. But at the same time, if PSG had won the Champions League and he were the exact same person, you're, we're having an entirely different conversation. So it's it's the confusing nature of having like hard opinions about soccer and how quickly those can change. But right now, mm-hmm. I think we're bo- we're both comfortable saying uh, it has not worked so well for him. But we'll see if he kind of uh, resurrects that career at PSG. But let's move away from like. Uh, like like highly valued, maybe not as successful players in Spain. And let's talk about Gareth Bale and Real Madrid. Uh, nice. 2-2 draw with Villarreal. Thank you very much. This was yet another strange performance this weekend. Gareth Bale gets the brace, pulls it back for Real Madrid both times, and then gets sent off for two very, very stupid yellow cards. <laughs> why does Gareth Bale do the things he does, Ryan? Because he's made of magic, Taylor. That's why. Is that what it is? Is he just I, I, Welsh and magical? He's Welsh and magical, very much so, like a dragon. Um, he's he's a. Uh, I love the way that Real Madrid celebrate him. Like on their Twitter, they put these tweets saying like he's won fourteen titles, he's scored one hundred and four goals, he scored in four finals. He's our hero. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if he got sent off a little bit, just a tiny bit sent off. You know, it's a shame that um, he he's going to miss the next few games because it seems like he's really up for it at the moment, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I guess I don't. I really I saw some theory that like he's willing to play one game as long as he gets the next game to play golf, and he just wanted to make sure he wasn't going to have to play the next game by getting a red card here. But oh. I just I was so confused by him because he comes in or he not comes in, he starts, but both of his goals are just sort of like really like we still haven't scored. Fine, I'll do it myself, and like cutting inside, scoring from a super tight angle, like being clutch in clutch moments, and then a r- genuinely yellow card in the ninety ninety second minute and a yellow card in the ninety fourth minute. Both of them, the the first one, 
is essentially for frustration. He's annoyed. Mm-hmm. He's been knocked around a little bit, and he kind of like lunges into a tackle, gets that yellow. The second one, he lunges into another tackle to try to block a clearance that did not need to happen. It's it's it was basically uh, VRL just trying to clear it out of their out of their defensive third, and he just goes in, studs up, gets the yellow, gets sent off, and it was. I found it really frustrating. I don't know why. I don't really have any rooting interest in Gareth Bale. I'm not a huge fan of Wales or anything like that. But just that he did seem like, oh, he turned around. He scored two goals. He is going to be a key player. And then he still makes dumb decisions and gets sent off. It really is reminiscent of Neymar to me. That like he can do great <laughs> things and then has moments of stupidity that cloud the great things and sort of obscure the narrative from that game a bit. Yeah, I, I still think he comes out pos- positive though uh, okay. with, with the two goals. Then, and he they weren't Granite Jacker stupid those those um, <laughs> by any means. <laughs> but what, what was interesting here, if you watch when he, after he scored the goals, it wasn't like they were all jumping on him and celebrating. I think he maybe I spotted a Sergio Ramos high five. That yep. was about it from both goals there. So still not striking me as Mister Popular in the dressing room. No, he he. I think he was like fortunate in that both times it was scoring like the goal to equalize, so that. That it, it was then that like oh get the ball let's run back and restart play like we want to keep it going but yeah. you're absolutely right that I did wonder is like is that the case or is it just like I don't know what's going to celebrate with me so I'm just going to run back and not speak Spanish the whole way back little column A little column B I think <laughs> for that one uh, one more uh, European game that I wanted to mention before we talk a little MLS uh, Rangers zero at home Celtic. Two, uh, old firm Derby goes to Celtic, as it has uh, many times in years past. Mm. I don't even really want to talk so much about that game because at this point it feels like, okay, yeah, SPL, Celtic going to win, probably going to win most of the uh, the old firm Derbys. That seems to be the way it goes. But, Ryan, we had a listener question last week about which formerly great or successful teams we would most like to see make a kind of resurgence or revival. And our answers were basically Rangers and then also Celtic, strangely. Uh, and then I think Daryl had leads and Wimbledon thrown in there as well. We talked about a few others like uh, Milan. But Rangers and, again, Celtic were the two that we kind of most wanted to see return to that era of really challenging each other and pushing each other to be better, but then also competing in Europe and being exciting teams to expect big things from. I mean, that goes back to like 1967. So yeah. I'm not saying this is like a We certainly are. But like, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if you have those same feelings towards Rangers and Celtic, or do you not necessarily care about this, the Scottish league and the Scottish teams? Um, I don't mean that to be as like inflammatory as it sounds. It's just more so. I guess I'm genuinely interested because Daryl and I spend so much time together. We tend to have like similar ideas about similar things, and I'm never sure if that is because that is the kind of consensus idea or the thing that makes the most sense, or if it is just we bounce ideas off of each other. Whereas somebody who's not with us every day might be like, "Yeah, I don't really care about those two teams. Like, whatever, Scotland's fine." I'm just surprised they play football in Scotland. I had no idea. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I, I think um, I, I, I'm reticent to sort of get behind that because it is a duopoly and I don't like the way they dominate, or has mm-hmm. been certainly historically a duopoly, yeah. and I don't like the way they dominate Scottish soccer in that way. But in, on the same side, on the European stage, I'd like to have seen Celtic go a little bit further, for example, yes. this season than they did. I'm, it's really fun when you see them sort of upstage Barcelona or Milan, as we've seen mm-hmm. in the past few yeah, seasons. Exactly. In those group stage, yeah, exactly. Right, those great little games they've had and those really famous nights. Those are pretty wonderful, aren't they? So I'd like to see a return of more of those, definitely. But I'm guessing that of the four teams I mentioned previously, if there were one team that you wanted to see competing in the Champions oh, Leeds, League, yeah. it's, oh, it's Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. Uh, a little MLS now, uh, Ryan. Uh, I w- would you rather start Philly, uh, Philly, Atlanta? Or would you rather start Seattle, LA? 
Let's start East Coast, baby. All right. Uh, Philadelphia Union 3, Atlanta United 1. Uh, I ended up watching most of this game uh, because uh, I did yard work all day yesterday and did not want to move last night. So I ended up watching uh, a couple different MLS games. And I found this one sort of difficult to summarize for purposes of today's show because I don't want to do the thing I mentioned previously where you end up talking about the the perceived bigger team uh, because they lost and Atlanta mm-hmm. get a lot of the headlines. But it's it's sort of tough to talk about this Philadelphia Union team because they did a little bit while they are like doing great and like and dominating in the East. It still felt a little bit like the Union Berlin strategy of be really really physical when the situation requires. Don't really worry about possession too much, but be ruthlessly effective and efficient when there are moments to attack and eventually you get the result and that's pretty much how this went that one-to-one for a good long while then it ends up with like two late goals for Philly they get the win so it's like well done but it does feel like because of the way Philly kind of approached this one probably a lot of the headlines and the narrative is gonna be about some of the things that went wrong for Atlanta yeah and I, I think you're right I think I think that Philly judged this one just right it wasn't probably how most of us expected this one would go given the run that Atlanta had been on given the fact they've won like two championships in the past week or something and, <laughs> and they, they won this one um, yeah the the, uh, the Campiones Cup of course don't forget that one and the and the US Open of course um, of course and they've been on a big, big big win streak and I think this is the right way to go about get, getting a um, re- result from given given their um, their their form Joseph Martinez, did you know he's been scoring a lot of goals, by the way? No. Is that a thing he does? It's been 13 in a row. And I, I, um, I wrote a preview for Yahoo about this game, and um, I did ask, I did request that you uh, you back um, Joseph Martinez as a goal scorer. First and, goal and, scorer, I believe. And how that, that, and how that work out? I think it worked out all right. That goal is something pretty. <laughs> that goal, <laughs> that, would that goal be beautiful? Yes, more so than um, almost hitting the ball against your own face to score, yeah. <laughs> the, you know the the, the, the Josh Arden thing. It reminds me. Do you remember? There's that classic uh, sort of own goal where mm-hmm. the, the defender kicks it against his own face and it goes in. It just yes. felt a little bit like that. Yeah. Yes, it did. Uh, I'm with you. I just it was a so a good reminder. But no, the 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 goal that we're talking about. It's really really pretty. If you haven't seen it, uh, Emerson Hyman hustles to win the ball back. Uh, Nagby picks the ball up. He drives. He gets through a couple different Philly players. Gets past uh, like like at least three Union players. And then it's just a quick combination play, a series of one-twos. But the mm. last one of like, Joseph Martinez into Nagby. Nagby with like the outside of the foot flick. Martinez with his first touch takes it around the goalie. The second is a finish. That goal was lovely. What I do want to talk about as well, though, is that was one goal for Martinez. He could have gotten two in the 80th minute thereabouts. Uh, Joseph Martinez, yeah. basically, there's miscommunication. Um, it's a back pass that like Andre Blake, the Philly goalkeeper, thought was coming but then wasn't ready for when it did come so it ends up with Joseph Martinez in a very strong shooting chance he has a collision prior to that so maybe this is where the kind of injury shout comes from but he's able to stay on his feet gets the loose ball takes a one-time shot with his left foot hits off the post and goes out of bounds Joseph Martinez then falls over and I thought for all the world like he'd torn his ACL like I thought he was done for the season right there he's grabbing his ACL he's grabbing the front and back of his knee he's on the ground screaming and seems very 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 hurt play stops a lot of treatment takes a long time and then he comes back on basically two minutes later and ends up playing the game and I 
like I talked to Felipe Cardenas, friend of the show, or Cardenas, excuse me, got to get the accent right, uh, friend of the show, covers Atlanta, and I asked him, like, w- was he faking this one? And he said, no, like, I think maybe they knocked knees, and that can be really painful and kind of uh, surprising. But Ryan, you who tends to s- sniff out the absurd <laughs> moments, w- was he faking uh, to make up for a bad miss, or do you think there genuinely was a little bit of injury, and then he comes back on and it's fine? I think he collapsed in embarrassment. You think he so? An, he missed an open goal. I kind of do, too. I kind of do, too. And I know that's not going to be a popular opinion, but just the way he goes down and then, like, stays down and then just comes right back in. And, like, he does the – he even does the, like, three-second, like, oh, I'm still limping on it, but now I'm fine. Like, it's just like I, – I did that when I was eight and I wanted to get out of gym yeah. class. I knew I to think fake, maybe, fake maybe limp. Maybe he, he felt a flash of pain and then he realized mm-hmm. he missed an open goal quite reasonably badly. Yeah. And it was a slight angle, I suppose, but still it was an open goal. <laughs> yeah. And then I think the, the embarrassment and confusion and pain all combined <laughs> to I've got to fall on the floor right now. Well, uh, commiserations to Joseph Martinez, uh, wishing him a speedy recovery. I think he's fine. Uh, and, and well done, Philly, with a 3-1 to one win. Uh, yeah. But while we're talking about potentially embarrassing moments, I want to go to Seattle uh, for LA Galaxy 3. A thrilling game. Christian rolled down with a late winner. But in terms of embarrassing moments, I'm going to fa- say Fox Sports 1 embarrassed themselves a little bit because they showed the march to the match of Seattle fans heading into the game. They always like to show that one because it's you know bright, vibrant colors, but so many people, they want to kind of market their teams that tend to attract big numbers and big attendances. And then some Seattle fans pointed out, like, hey, uh, I'm not at that game. I am, like, there's one person who's like, I'm pictured front and center of that march, and I am in Montana right now. And the reason for that is because Fox showed uh, a march to the match from a different Seattle game because they didn't want to show any sort of protest banners or, or run that risk. And I find that to be, if not frustrating, then downright uh, cowardly and weak from, from Fox, which maybe shouldn't be that big of a surprise. Uh, Ryan, did you, did you catch this one, and what were your thoughts? Can you understand from a broadcast perspective why they wanted to avoid that? No, that's what I don't understand. Okay. That's what I don't understand from a broadcast perspective, because what, why would Fox, what interest do Fox have in not showing what's happening at that point? Right? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it seems that, that felt to me like a broadcaster sort of not doing their job in in towing the line and like not wanting us to show exactly what was happening on the ground because whether or not you agree or disagree i i agree with the protest but like whether or not you agree with or disagree with that like you still need to be informed like you still want to know what's going on and to not even show that that's a weird moment of like no we don't even trust the viewer to decide for themselves uh we're just going to make that decision for them it's it just feels like murky revisionist history almost doesn't it like you can understand why they won't show a street they don't want to give that streaker publicity right. or whatnot but mm-hmm. this is not the same thing this is literally mm-hmm. <laughs> not showing what's going on and that's their job yeah i so so uh, a a weak performance from fox uh, on that one less weak from seattle who are able to kind of keep pulling ahead find a way to win jordan morris i said on twitter had i think my favorite goal i've ever seen him score because it's like really quick decision making but some really nice technical work and then a really really calm finish he doesn't use his left foot in this sequence that would have been the icing on the cake if he finished with his left foot but he does have moments in this game when he sort of like cheats like he's going to use his right foot and then cuts back and crosses with his left which is not a skill set we've seen from him all that often and then as I mentioned Christian Roldan uh, nets the late winner he gets two goals in this game Uh, Ryan Daryl and I are not as big a fans of Jordan Morris uh, or Christian Roldan when it comes to the national team like I understand they're good servants for Seattle they 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 do good things obviously this game shows that 
But at national team level, I think both of us are less concerned. And this is similar to what I was asking you before about, like, like I want your perspective on these things, from Josh Sargent to Neymar to see where you are on yeah. them. Do you have thoughts on either of them playing for the national team in terms of, like, should they be there, their quality, uh, what they've done in the past? W- would you like to see them there, or do you not necessarily care because you, you hate the United States and only love England? Hey, come on. <laughs> you know I hate the United now. Of course I don't. No, um, I think I've made my uh, my Morris um, thoughts clear. Mm-hmm. Not, I think I've said it before. I, I think he is flattered by bad defending sometimes. Yes. I think he, he when it comes up against, against a good defense, isn't so hot and... I mean, credit to him for this, this goal through the middle, which was pretty good, and he got he put the Jets on to get to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm not. I'm not thoroughly sold by him. I'm not sold by him as a national team player. I, I know he how exciting it was yeah. when he broke through and whatnot, and the, all the Stanford stuff, and that's great. But yeah, I'm not sold. <laughs> I'm not 100 percent sold. Is my answer. I, I think I, I'm. I'm. I am. Glad to hear you say that because I genuinely do respect your opinion on these things. But it, it's also Ooh, kind of <laughs> true. Uh, but it is where I am with him is that like for every moment of solid player, good decision making, he has moments. And this is Roldan as well, where I do think he gets a little bit fortunate by some of the people that are playing around him. Mm-hmm. Last week, Morris is able to like set up a goal, but he does so by basically running into Zarek Valentin. And then Valentin puts in a really weak challenge, and Morris is able to keep the ball. A stronger defender, I think, puts a foot through that ball and wins it. And same thing with Roldan. He gets, I think he could have been knocked off the ball a little bit more readily if the Galaxy had been a bit more physical in dealing with him and just a little bit better in tracking him. Does he get those two goals? Does he have as successful as a game? And I think... Again, I'm not trying to trash either one of them. It's just that I think routinely I have been burned by like, yeah, they're doing it. They're so good for Seattle. Let's get them in that national team. And they come in and they look a little bit slower or that touch is a little bit heavier. But now you're playing against other national teams who can deal with that and do have more capable defenders. And I think Mm. that's where you see their performances drop off a little bit. So while I began this asking you for your opinion, I'm glad it ended with me ranting about the two of them yet again. I'm glad it did too. The other the other two um, <laughs> things I wanted to talk about from this game is sure. uh, the Seattle first and fourth mm-hmm. goals, both kind of carbon copies of an unmarked, an unmarked man at the back post, which is quite concerning for the Galaxy, I thought. But the other thing I wanted to say is Ibrahimovic getting that header off. Is there anyone better in the entire game? Who is there anyone you'd rather have in the box on the end of that ball than Zlatan? I think he's just he's just a master of getting ahead on those kind of things, isn't he? He he is, and 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 I th- I, th- I think about it for a moment because like the only other big guy I've seen be almost unplayable in a game. This is going to sound really strange to say is like Fernando Llorente against Ajax. They had no way to deal with how big he was and bringing it down. But Fernando Llorente is not Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and Ibrahimovic is like next level ability alone. I think mm-hmm. is probably why I want him in there, even at his advanced age. But also just because he is such a ruthless, ruthless person, and you know that like. All you have to say is, hey, you're probably not going to score today because you haven't been very good. And he's going to score from like 60 yards out or he's going to win some towering header to score just because you said he wouldn't. So I think just because I think I could get him psyched up enough to score a hat trick, I would definitely go uh, Zlatan as that player in the box. Yeah, agreed. I just think he's just he's just, he's just so ta- talismanic, I suppose, is the word I'd use. Just the way he can get above any defender and always perfectly places his headers. It's such a skill. It's such an underrated yeah. skill as well. 
It certainly is. Uh, now all the galaxy need are some defenders, and then maybe maybe That'll they won't nice. have carbon copy goals, and maybe they'll uh, <laughs> look a little bit more stable. But to do that, they'll have to, I don't know, find a way to sign another DP that isn't technically a DP, which I'm sure they'll be able to do. But until they do that, uh, we should probably talk about the Total Soccer Show Scouting Network. To bring this episode to a close, we've got a few scouting reports to get to. Uh, if you sign up to support the show at any level, uh, Daryl will assign you a young player. Can be an American, can be anybody else, depending on what what your rooting interest might be. Uh, we've got a few scouting reports to get to, start, starting with Todd Brannon uh, scouting Cameron Carter-Vickers. Todd Brannon is not scouting Todd Brannon, which is what I have written in this document. Ryan, uh, since I have that typo in there, why don't you take it over from there uh, with the Cameron Carter-Vickers scouting report? Yeah, he continues his on-again, off-again relationship with Stoke. He started and played the full 90 in the shootout victory over Leeds United in the second round of the uh, Carabao Cup during the week. He was then left off the matchday squad over the weekend in Stoke's 2-1 loss to Birmingham in the championship. The loss leaves Stoke winless after six matches. Yikes in the championship there. And propping up the rest of the league with one point and a minus nine goal difference. It's not great. It's not great, Ryan. It's not, not great. Um, but at least they got to uh, give three points to your favorite Leeds United. That's good. Uh, <laughs> Cole Hamilton scouting Callum Connolly, the 21-year-old English defender slash midfielder on loan at Lincoln City from Everton. Everton have uh, sent Connolly to Lincoln City in League One on a season-long loan. We've covered that. Mm. Uh, this has been seen as a step down for Callum, who has had five previous loans to championship sides. Five loans as a 21-year-old. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. He's a journeyman by 21. That's rough, isn't it? That's upsetting and accurate all at once. (laughs) Tyler Smith has been scouting Ian Hoffman, the 17-year-old German-American for Karlsruhe under-19s. He's been called up by Tab Ramos for the new under-20 cycle. He started all four games this season as a midfielder for the Karlsruhe under-19s. He's listed by US Soccer as a defender for their friendlies against the Slovenia under-19s and the UAE under-23s. There we go. Jesse Frankel scouting Matteo Rattaccio the 17-year-old American midfielder for Liverpool. Matteo went 90 and collected his first goal for the Liverpool U18s in their 4-3 win over the Manchester United U18s. See, United can't win anywhere. Prior to that <laughs> appearance, it was announced that Matteo would be joining the USU20s for those uh, aforementioned friendlies in early September. This is Matteo's first call-up to the U20s. Very good. Russell which, is no, which is not surprising given that he is 17. Yeah, that's, that's good going, I'd say. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, decent, decent. By the way, the, the under-18s Liverpool Man United, that's just the Premier League 2, isn't it? I believe no, so. No, it's not. Yes. That's the under-23s, isn't it? I'm confused. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. 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 In your face, Ryan. And I'll also me on. for agreeing. Russell Varner is scouting <laughs> Alex Mendes, the 18-year-old American midfielder for Ajax. Mm-hmm. Young Ajax? Young Ajax, yeah, I think. Young Ajax? <laughs> you, you don't like Young Ajax? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Mendes made his second appearance for Yoga Hikes on August 30th when he came on in the 59th minute of a wild 3-2 win over Almere City. <laughs> Mendes was credited with an assist on the game-tying goal in the 93rd minute, and Ajax would score again two minutes later to earn their second win of the season. Later that day, the mm-hmm. 18-year-old was named by Jason Kreese, who still makes me think of South like, oh, Jason Kreese, <laughs> to the 24-man <laughs> roster for the USA under-23s camp and subsequent match against Japan, his first call-up for the USA since the under-20 World Cup earlier this summer. Woo! Young Americans doing stuff, Ryan. Right. I know you're excited. Uh, Oscar Leon, uh, Leon, excuse me, scouting Michael Obafemi, 19-year-old Irish forward for Southampton. Obafemi scored against Fulham in a 1-0 League Cup win last Tuesday. In his second appearance of the season, the speedster latched onto a cross, a low cross from uh, Redmond from the left wing to put the Saints up. Very nice. Speedster. That's a good description. Speedster. Yeah. 
Uh, Alex Bush is scouting someone called Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Apparently he's a 21-year-old right back for Manchester United. Who Mm -hmm. knew? Aaron has played every minute for Man United through four league games and provided the game-winning assist for his former club, uh, Crystal Palace, after (laughs) tackling Zaha in stoppage time and the ball-finding Van Anholt, who put it past De Gea. Ouch! On a more positive note, he's been called up to the England national team. Well done him for the first time for their matches against Bulgaria and Kosovo. Good stuff. Hey, pausing for a moment to ask about England, did you? I saw the story that like Gareth Southgate has a no jerks policy. Are you familiar with that, or is that a made up thing? <laughs> I'm not. That sounds wonderful, though. Like, or, I think it's like the idea that he wants people who are going to fit within the team. So he like makes a point of finding out like players' dispositions, and if he thinks there's going to be a player that I don't think necessarily is like has a difficult personality. I don't think it's quite that like like. Uh, What's the word like carte blanche or like whatever like blank check approach mm. or blanket approach? That's the word I'm looking for, not blank check. Apologies. Like he then maybe doesn't look at them as hard as he would a player who maybe isn't quite at that level, but like tends to have a better personality. That felt like an interesting way to uh, like maybe judge Miss America, but then also coach England at the same time. But maybe that's just more <laughs> of a, an apocryphal story. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. There we go. All right, uh, Brian Hoysa scouting Sergino Dest, 18-year-old American right back for Ajax. Sergino Dest had a great Wednesday last week. Berhalter called him up to the September friendlies, and he started the second leg of Ajax's Champions League qualifier, in which they beat Apuel 2-0 to advance to the group stage. He then started this past weekend and played 65 minutes in Ajax's 4-1 win over Sparta Rotterdam. Very nice. Let's do one more. Andrea Gandjara is scouting Andrija Novakovic, who's a 20-year-old American striker, for 22-year-old American striker, mm-hmm. I should say, for the Reading Club, a.k.a. <laughs> Reading. Novakovic has not featured for Reading's first team in any competition aside from the five-minute cameo on the EFL Championship opening day. Since then, Reading have signed two forwards, meaning time will be even more limited. As a result, PEC Zvola are hoping to bring him in on a season-long loan. Hardly an upgrade over his previous club, Fortuna Sittard, but it's probably still better than playing for Reading's under-23s. That checks out to me. And once again, lovely pronunciation from Ryan Bailey. Uh, and that lovely pronunciation brings this episode to a close. As always, a little bit lengthy, our weekend review. Ryan, I appreciate you taking all the time to talk to me about all of the many, many games uh, from this past weekend. Uh, always a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you very much, Jason.